author, theologian, educator C.S. Lewis has a quote that says, the perfect church service would be one that the people were unaware of because their full attention is on God. And it's, you know, just got me the realization it's not about me, it's not about the team, it's not about the, the cool lights and the technology and the ability that we have to live stream and it's not about the coffee and occasional donuts and uh, all of our volunteers. It's, it's all about Jesus. And right now, in this moment, there are thousands and thousands of churches all across the world um, and millions of Christ followers who are coming together today under the same mission, that exact same moment, declaring it's not about me. And recentering our focus not just one day a week, not just for one hour a week, but all throughout, Monday through Sunday, coming together and saying, this, there's something going on here that is bigger than me. And it doesn't just include me, but it includes the me next to me and the person next to the other person. Perfect church service would be one that we are completely in awe of God. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Crossbridge, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jordan, if it's your first time visiting here. I am the online pastor and one of our teaching pastors and just so um, excited to be here and just grateful that you are here if you are visiting with us today. Um, I would love to get to know you in the back in the lobby and just uh, get to hear a little bit about who you are, your family, your story. And if you're tuning with us online, thank you for being a part of this. And uh, please comment down below so that way I can connect with you after the service as well. But I'm just really excited about today because today is the Sunday before the Sunday that is why we do what we do. Easter Sunday next week, hashtag add 9 o'clock and 10.30. would love for you to be a part of that. Invite your friends, invite your family members, uh, because next Sunday is just an awesome opportunity for us to come together as one body, as one community, declaring that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the hope of the world. But there's something really exciting that happens prior to next Sunday. And this week, this week is known as Holy Week, it's Passion Week. It's actually one of my favorite weeks to study. Um, I've thought about, you know, writing an entire book about this week just because of how much I love studying, especially Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, but what becomes a temptation for so many of us is for us to skip what happens today to get to even skipping Good Friday of the crucifixion of Jesus just to get to Easter and to get to the celebration and to get to why we do, why we gather because of the resurrection of Jesus. But today, Palm Sunday, is extremely important for us to recenter our focus, realign our hearts to Jesus and say, wow, there's something bigger going on here. And maybe you're new uh, or newer to the faith and you're like, what's Palm Sunday? Sounds like Florida and I just got back, okay? Um, for those of us who were not as fortunate to go to Florida this last week and endured the 32-degree snowstorm that we had with just snow flowers yesterday. Snow flowers, that's a fun word. <laughs> snow showers. <laughs> April brings May showers, something about snow flowers. There's your new poem for the day. <laughs> and so, anyway... Uh, but uh, when, you're, when you're, you know, dealing with all of that fun stuff um, and all of that whatnot and, you know, palm trees and Palm Sunday, there's something power and significant and special about today. And for those maybe, you know, you're not aware of what Palm Sunday is, it's the Sunday before Easter where Jesus triumphantly enters the town, the city, the community 
of Jerusalem. It's a really cool story, really powerful situation. And it's one of the unique times that we have each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers, the first four books of the New Testament, all write about Palm Sunday. They all write about this triumphant entry back into Jerusalem where Jesus fulfills the prophecy, rides in, um, rides in on the lowliest of lows, on a colt of a donkey, rides in to declare that he is king over all. And so each gospel records this. And, and originally when I was planning throughout the week, I really wanted to read each gospel account because there are some differences and some details. Uh, but that would have been a long, long, long service and my voice would not have held out. I was less concerned about you being able to sit in the chair for that long because this is an important day, an important message. So your homework for this week, go read Matthew, Mark, and John. Okay, go read Matthew, Mark, and John because today we're just gonna be walking through the gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 19 to be exact. And the title of the message today is When Stones Cry Out. When Stones Cry Out. But Palm Sunday is so significant, not just for our Christian faith, but also it would have been extremely significant for the Jews as well. Uh, And there's a reason why they celebrated and used palm branches to rejoice of their coming of the Messiah, coming back into the city. And we're going to talk through all of those details today. We're going to walk through Luke 19, have a few ideas here here and there, then go back to Isaiah to see the prophecy that was fulfilled, and then end with four next steps for you to take with you throughout the week. Remember, the temptation can be for something like this is for us to just skip through, you know, Monday through Saturday to get to Easter. But it's so important that we allow ourselves the moments to be able to grieve, to be able to weep, to be able to celebrate, to be able to rejoice. All of the emotions throughout this week to say that this is bigger than just me. There's something more going on here. So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, we're going to dive into Luke's account of the story of Palm Sunday. And as you're turning there, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. It's also going to be here on the screen. But as you're turning here, we're going to pick up in uh, verse 28. Verse 28. And each gospel writer actually has a different um, beginning and ending to kind of the, the passages that surround these 12 verses or 16 verses we're going to go through. Each gospel writer shares a different parable or a different story that Jesus walks through and talks about before this passage, and then a different situation that happens after this passage. And it's really cool because each writer is actually approaching a different crowd um, and and a different group of people and writing to a different group of people. And Luke, it was so important for him to understand the history and to understand the facts. And that's why he went out and he did research and he gathered the witnesses. He was kind of like your court jury, your justice, all of those things. He was going out to grab the facts, and so his is a very detail-oriented gospel. And so what happens right before this is Jesus actually shares a parable about three individuals that a man entrusts his wealth with and gives them an opportunity to take their wealth and invest it in different places. Two of them do, one of them doesn't, and he is punished for it. And so we leave from that story right into this where Jesus then prepares to re-enter Jerusalem. And this is what Luke's gospel writes in chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, that parable, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Stop there for a second. A couple of things I want you to highlight if you've got your Bible with you. Highlight the phrase, uh, just the, the, the location, the Mount of Olives. Um, it is verse 29. You can just highlight the whole thing if you've got your U version. We're going to talk about that for a second. In just a few days, uh, the Mount of Olives is going to be a very significant place for the story of Jesus. Okay, uh, at the Kidron Valley of the Mount of Olives is where we have the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is a significant part of Jesus' entire ministry, not just the night before he was crucified. It was actually a place that he went to go pray to time and time again. And here is something that's so significant about the history of the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that it was outside of Jerusalem, outside the walls, and it had to be because large gardens weren't allowed to be inside the walls of Jerusalem. And so only somebody who was extremely wealthy could own a garden outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And you didn't just let strangers come into your place. And so this was probably someone that Jesus was really close to who owned the Garden of Gethsemane, who was in charge of the Garden of Gethsemane, and allowed Jesus to come time and time again to come pray in his place. And we know that it was an, uh, a frequent stop for Jesus uh, because that is how Judas knew that he would be praying in the garden and brought the 600 soldiers to come arrest him. It's a really fascinating story that happens on good I get it, it, Thursday into Friday, just a few days from now. But why that's significant for this is because in the Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means the Mount of Olive or the Mount of Olives and, and the Olive, the Garden of Olives, okay? And there's a crushing that happens when you're trying to extract the nutrients from olives. In fact, some educators will say that the harder you crush it and try to get down to the seed, to crush the seed, that is when the real juices are extracted, and so in just a few days from now, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, and he is in such deep meditation that he is literally sweating blood because of how deep and sorrowful he is. And there's a crushing that happens. A literal crushing that takes place in the Mount of Crushing, the Mount of Olives. And so just a few days before that, right here in this moment, Jesus is getting ready to prepare his entry back into Jerusalem. And it begins on the Mount of Crushing, on the Mount of Olives. And then just, you know, a verse later where we have verse 30, he says to two disciples, I think it's fascinating where we don't know many of the disciples that Jesus is actually talking to. But if I was just, I feel very insignificant. It was like if Luke didn't remember that, you know, it was me. We have Peter, James, and John, and then we have the two disciples. And so he says to so the two disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. And once again, Jesus chooses a very significant animal to re-enter, to enter back into Jerusalem, to triumphantly enter into Jerusalem because the cult, and I just literally typed in Google, what is a cult? And the first thing that comes up is it is a youthful uh, or a, a male horse often in its youth under the age of four years old, inexperienced, inexperienced. And that's who Jesus chose. He didn't cho choose this chariot army to go back to the holy city. He chose the low lowliest of lows, the, the colt, to ride in on 
and to enter into Jerusalem. All right, let's go back to verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the other gospel writers include the verse, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna. Seven-letter word. It's very important. Write that down. Hosanna, Hosanna. Verse 39, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I'm going to stop there for a second. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's completely opposite of any entry going into a kingdom for a king. Rather than having his chariot army, which the chariots were the prized possession of the Romans, really any leader who wanted to conquer, who wanted to take over, who wanted to make sure that they were able to oppress their people. You had chariot armies, and Jesus does the exact opposite. He goes to the lowliest of lows. He grabs a colt in his youth, an inexperienced animal, and enters into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly on this Palm Sunday. And different translations, actually different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John include that they have palm branches that they would, that the, the crowd of people would go and gather. So while they're laying down their cloaks, they would grab palm branches that they would have probably on stock. And they would use those to lay down as well and also wave in the air shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes our Messiah. Here comes our Savior. Here comes the one that was promised to us in the first 39 books of the Bible. The one that as we see the Old Testament, that we see the Torah, that we see the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, this is the one who is here to fulfill the prophecy. And they do this, and different gospel writers say they do this because of the miracles and the signs that they had seen. That is how and why they believed that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. They had heard about this man who had raised Lazarus from the dead who had healed the blind and given the sick health. You've got this Savior who is coming in, and this is their Messiah, the awaited king, going into the kingdom, and they believe he's going to take it by force. And actually, if you read throughout the whole Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, I'd make the same mistake. Because the language that the writers use is language of war, is language of power, is language of strength. But with the Jews and the Pharisees at the time, and so many of us do as well, we don't recognize that Jesus chose love as his weapon of choice. He chose grace as his weapon of choice. He chose truth as his weapon of choice. He put aside the chariot, he put aside the swords, he put aside the metal. He went into the community 
on a colt while the entire community is shouting Hosanna, Hosanna with their palm branches and with their cloaks on the ground saying, this is the one. And here's why this is so significant. Um, Palm branches actually have a historical significance for the Jewish culture. It's not, we don't just celebrate Palm Sunday because of today, because we, you know, palm, palm branches and palm trees, they don't get their significance in Jewish religion because of today or Jewish culture because of today. It's something that they've celebrated all the way from back when they were um, experiencing the Exodus, second book of the Bible, where God sends Moses and Aaron to, uh, to uh, help the Israelites Uh, escape captivity, escape slavery from the Egyptians. If you haven't read Exodus, it's one of my favorite Old Testament books, okay? And so Jesus, or God actually helps them get out of the Exodus, helps them in their Exodus get out of Egypt. And after they do that, God gives them a command. He says, hey, I want you to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle every year. It's going to last seven days. This comes in Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus Leviticus 23. And he says, hey, I want you to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle. And a part of the celebration, I want you to have palm trees and palm branches be a part of that. Because for their culture, palm trees and palm branches, they represented salvation. They represented eternity. They represented peace. They represented victory. They represented our Savior. And so it was a part of the culture in Judges chapter 4. I just taught on, uh, on uh, the, uh, the judge of Deborah, where she would judge under the shade of a palm tree. Under the shade of a palm tree, because she recognized that there was comfort there, that there was strength there, that there was authority there. Judges chapter 4. First Kings chapter 6, King Solomon, when he was building this historic, marvelous temple, he wanted to engrave and carve into the walls of the temple palm trees. And palm branches, because he wanted it covered in this symbol for Jewish culture. And so this was a deep, deep history, historical significance for the Jews. And so as their Messiah is entering into the city of Jerusalem, the entire crowd grabs the palm branch to say, this is the one. This is where eternity is found. This is going to be the one who overthrows the Roman, Roman Empire. And that's when they get mixed up a little bit. Because they're expecting Jesus to enter into the community with their pitchforks, kind of go all Shrek motive on them. And instead he enters in and chooses death as victory. And so we pick up the story in verse 41 because this is what Jesus recognizes. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, highlight these few words, he wept over it. This is the second time that Jesus weeps. We often go over the passage, the shortest two words, uh, shortest verse in all of scripture, Jesus wept. It's found in John chapter 11, when Jesus is weeping over the death of his good friend Lazarus. Hashtag ad, if you want to hear more of the story, come back for Easter next Sunday. That's two ads in one Sunday. We're getting pretty, we're getting pretty, you know, we're trying to push our exposure out here, Okay. But there's actually a second time that is much less known and talked about that Jesus weeps. And it's right now as he's entering back into the city of Jerusalem, he weeps over it. Verse 42 explains a little bit why. And Jesus said, if you, even you, Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies, your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, he's, he's, he's shouting to Jerusalem. He's aching for Jerusalem. They will not leave one stone on another. And here's why. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He is weeping and he is broken and he is aching because of the cost of sin. Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin are death. And Jesus knew that firsthand. He was going to place the sin on his back in the form of a hundred pound beams for the cross with his bloody back all scarred and shredded as he's carrying the cross down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, that mile-long journey from Jerusalem back to Golgotha where he's going to be killed. And he, five days before he's arrested, is weeping over the city. He looks over it as a community just now was shouting a seven-letter word, Hosanna, would in five days be shouting a different seven-letter word, crucify. Crucify. Because he was killed by his own people. And he knows that this is the cost of sin. He knows that as an unblemished lamb, an unblemished lion, a sinless human, he was going to have to place the entire world on his shoulders and die for us to fulfill the old covenant once and for all and to establish the new covenant for the rest of eternity. And he weeps and he is broken. This prophecy actually happens in Isaiah 29. If you want to turn with me there, it'll be on the screen. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah says this, verse 13. The Lord says this, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, shouting, Hosanna. That's what they're saying. They're honoring him with their lips. Hosanna, Hosanna. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wish will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? Jesus knew. And he was broken because of it. Because of the darkness because of the pain, because of the suffering. And he knew that in just a couple days, the very crowd, the very community shouting Hosanna would be shouting crucify and he would be left there with the stones crying out. It's so fascinating to me that the, the first miracle that we see Jesus perform takes place at a wedding. John chapter two, takes place at a wedding. And the final miracle that we see Jesus perform takes place in John chapter 11 before his resurrection where it takes place at a funeral. And then just a few short days later after that, he enters into the city of Jerusalem, triumphantly entering it on a colt with his community shouting Hosanna, his disciples all around him with palm branches that signify victory and eternity and salvation and peace and wonder and awe and amazement. And this is their king. 
and then they crucify him. It's an incredible sequence of events that take place in just a few short days' time. And as you study it, as you think about it, as you meditate on it, you pray on it, and you think about this week and what it means for us, it just gives me a few ideas about what Palm Sunday actually means. Is because Palm Sunday is about Jesus choosing death as victory. Jesus choosing death as victory. <laughs> Palm Sunday is about Jesus weeping over the cost of sin and brokenness. Weeping over the cost of sin and brokenness. Palm Sunday is about Jesus being surrounded by the same people who shouted Hosanna would soon be shouting crucify. But it comes down to this, is that Jesus recognized that death was the only way that victory would come through. I want to give us four next steps for us to close on today. Things to be walking through, things to be processing throughout this week. See, there's, there's four main uses that the Jews and, the, and, and Jewish um, culture had for palm trees. Four things. I'll just say them real quick all at once, and then we're going to break down each one with the next step. But the four main uses, construction, insulation, uh, construction, insulation fuel, and nourishment. Construction, insulation, fuel, and nourishment. For construction, they would use it to construct their boats and construct their houses. For, uh, for uh, insulation, to keep the things insulated, that which was inside, to keep it regulated. Fuel, they would actually turn it into charcoal and use it to burn. And then nourishment through coconuts. <laughs> and they would use it as a, to, to, to nourish and replenish their bodies. So here's four next steps of as we're processing this message and thinking about it, four things I want you to be thinking about that we're going to pull out of the story, that we're going to extract from the Mount of Olives, the crushing, to pull out of the story as we enter into Holy Week. And think about what does this mean for me? What does this look like for us? The first one, construction. Construction. I wanted to start with the most important one. Asking you the question, what is your faith built on? What is the foundation of your faith? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that our entire faith is useless, is pointless. Our preaching doesn't matter if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. That is the foundation of why we do what we do. Everything is built on that event happening, on Jesus being resurrected. And it's not just because the Bible says so. 500 testimonial accounts say so. Gospel writer after gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, uh, Paul, all of these different individuals, uh, James, who are writing and saying, this is the Messiah. And for 30 years before they had, or for 300 years before they had the Bible, they had the message. Before the, uh, before the Bible was constructed into what we have, they had the message of the foundation that this is why we do what we do. If your faith is not built on that foundation, it will fail you. If you find your hope in that of this world, it will fail you. If you find your salvation in this wonderful word of God, this 66-letter book, if you find your salvation in these pages, it will fail you. If you find your salvation in wealth, it will fail you. Our salvation is built 
on the resurrection of Jesus alone. And if that event didn't happen, none of this matters. As Solomon says in in, uh, Ecclesiastes, then all of this is meaningless, like chasing after the wind. So construction, what is your faith built on? Number two, insulation. This was an interesting one for me. I didn't want to say what I'm about to say because it sounds really goofy. But every time I try to figure out how can I work this into this message and this story and insulation, God kept placing this phrase on my heart. Jesus was the perfect, perfect insulated. Jesus was perfectly insulated. That's what it was. Jesus was perfectly insulated. My God, what the heck does that mean? Jesus was hot and cold and emotionally insulated and he was spiritually insulated and he would, you know, he recognized when were the times to weep and when were the times to mourn and when were the times to rejoice and to push back. So many of us wrestle with this concept of being full of grace and full of truth. Well, when do I tell my people, my friends, that they're wrong? When do I show them grace? When do I talk about sin? When do I talk about mercy? When do I talk about judge? When do I talk about all of this? And then every time that we talk about God, we have to talk about this four-letter word, holy. Holy. And as we strive for being perfectly insulated, just as Jesus was, and finding that balance of being regulated inside and being regulated outside and finding the balance of what does it look like for me, it should always be a lifelong journey. Unfortunately, we can't give you the perfect, um, the perfect like step-by-step, like, hey, this is when you show truth, and this is when you show grace, and this is actually when you're supposed to show both of them at the same time, because that is what it means to be full of grace and truth and full of mercy and judgment and love and peace and honor, and it goes on and on and on, because we're human, and we're fallible, and we are sinful, and we're going to get it wrong. The church will get it wrong. We see a lot of individuals, a lot of churches, and and a lot of pastors, and a lot of athletes, and a lot of politicians, and a lot of people get it wrong. And we think this is, you know, this is messed up. (laughs) Because it is. But then it breaks us, and we're like, God, how could, how is this, like, this is ruining the world. It is. Because we're fallible, and we're sinful. And this has been happening since the dawn of time. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lasted before they fell to sin. But if it's anything like what I would have done, if I was told I wasn't allowed to grab something, I'm going after it. So I've got to imagine it was a short amount of time. So what does it look like for us to be perfectly insulated? Strive every day. Number three, fuel. Okay, one of the reasons um, I really want to talk about this, we did an entire series about this. The fuel is what feeds us. Okay, what gives us our oomph, okay? In other words, the fuel for us is our purpose as humans. And Jesus recognized this. Jesus recognized that the humans that he was encountering as he was triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, they wanted his purpose to be power, to be strength, to be violence, to be war. And just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago where we answered the question, what is my purpose? It's a universal purpose that every single one of us has. Three things, love God, love people, and live your life to glorify the kingdom. That's what your purpose is. And if you find your fuel from something other than the Holy Spirit, or if I say that and you're like, what's the Holy Spirit? We did a series on that back in November, December called Supernatural. Hashtag third ad of the day on YouTube. Go check it out. The Holy Spirit. 
gives us our calling. Okay? Our calling is what we do to achieve our purpose. Our purpose is all the same. Love God, love people, live your life to glorify the kingdom. Your calling, that which you specifically were created to do and designed to, you, designed to do. And that is where you have to spend time praying and spend time learning about yourself. How can I use what I'm doing now for the kingdom of God? Because too many of us overthink our calling. Too many of us think that we have to be in vocational ministry or church ministry or we have to do something uh, or be a missionary or do something that is like seen as this like top thing. And I've seen some of the greatest kingdom builders working some of the lowliest jobs based on society's point of view. And so fuel, lean into your purpose. Lean into your purpose. Last one for today, nourishment. Uh, we all like food, Okay. Fortunately, that's not where I'm going with this, but I just wanted to let you know, we all like food, okay? Rest is so important for your soul. We're going through a book on our online campus, hashtag ad number four, called How's Your Soul by Judah Smith. If you're not in our online campus, it's on Facebook. Click our page, go to groups, and you'll be able to join right away, or I can help you navigate your way there. But we are doing a book club for the month of April called How's Your Soul by Judah Smith. We're walking through what our soul is, how we strengthen it, how we grow it, how we nourish it. And the chapter we're walking through this week, chapter two, is that Jesus embodied rest. He embodied living in solitude, living in prayer, living in peace. I saw a tweet this week that said, we need to do more of like being like Jesus. Where Jesus partied it up, John chapter 2, where he was at a wedding. And I heard a pastor one time joke is, the reason Jesus had to turn water into wine is because he brought his disciples. So you got Peter and the teenage boys that drank all the wine. <laughs> okay, that's a, you know, another day for another story. But anyway, and so you've got this situation where Jesus partied it up at the wedding, and then he took naps. And how many of us are living in community and resting? How many of us idolize productivity? How many of us idolize work? And again, you have to ask yourself, when's the last time you took a full day Sabbath? You're like, I can't give up a full day. Then that's idolatry. I know I just made some people like cringe a little bit and that's okay. But your nourishment for your soul comes from rest, from giving God this season of your life, saying, God, this is for you. And it all comes down to this phrase that we're talking about for today and Good Friday and Easter. God cares about all of those things because we're the ones he loves. We're the ones he loves. That's why he's going into Jerusalem and he starts weeping and he endures the crushing and he endures the pain and he endures the suffering and he endures the, the crowd who is literally gonna be shouting crucify in a couple of days. It's because of this phrase. I and the one you love. And when we start to believe this, all of hell gets nervous. The devil starts, um, starts really attacking harder. And so you might be thinking, okay, why am I so anxious now? Why am I so under fire? Why is, you know, A, B, C, and D all happening? It's because when you believe you're a child of God and you lean into these five words, these six words, I am the one you love, it's game over. It's game over. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, 
Stones cry out for you and your glory and your strength and your power and your mighty. They cry out Hosanna because us sinful, fallible, messed up humans get it wrong every time and we shout crucify. And yet you love us anyway. You chose to free Barabbas rather than free yourself. You chose to share meals with Judas rather than condemning him on the spot. You chose to show mercy to the people on the cross and the centurion and the guards surrounding him at the cross while you're being beaten and bruised rather than spewing hate and getting off the cross. That would have been the easier thing to do. But Lord, you chose to love. So God, we're grateful, we're thankful, we give this to you. And all of God's people said, amen.